For the past year, we've been looking at Carol Quigley's framework for understanding modern history. We did that for several reasons. The biggest one being that many of the very people who have shaped our world in the past, especially 30 years, but even before that, going back to the 1960s and 1950s, were direct students of Carol Quigley at Georgetown University in Washington. That includes maybe most famously Bill Clinton, one of our American presidents. But we've also done that partly because Carol Quigley stops his enormous book, utterly lacking in footnotes and utterly full of fascinating information, tragedy, and hope, about the year 1965. The book was published just a year later. And the reason that he stops there is because he's telling a story about the modern world where we have arrived at a certain pinnacle that he's celebrating in 1965. Like when you go all the way to the top of a mountain and then you just stand there for a while, looking around, thinking about how hard it was to get here, but how good you feel now. We can use that idea of going to the top of a mountain in 1965 if we want to, but realize that we're on the long way down from something that was actually achieved in 1965 that we will give credit for here in a second, but mostly because the long way down has been a long way down from all kinds of standards that Quigley himself is taking for granted about daily life, about how people live, what they think, and especially as we're going to look at this week and next, what they believe. Carol Quigley was teaching at one of America's older universities. Certainly it's most famous in many ways, apart from football, most famous Catholic universities and was himself a Roman Catholic. What we're looking at this week and next is the decline of the Roman Catholic church, not only in the United States of America, but in many ways worldwide in some ways and in some places, very much numerical decline, but more than that, theological decline from a height of unity and power that they had attained, certainly near the close of Quigley's book, near the end of that time period, but that in 1965, with the closure of the Second Vatican Council, they would begin to mark as the long descent a descent to a point where, as we'll discuss probably next week, Pope Francis sees himself as consolidating rather than innovating. He has consolidated and nuclearized decline of so many kinds and has thereby taken over the fate of the largest Christian denomination in the world. 1965 is a landmark for the Roman Catholic Church, but before we talk about that, let's just note what kind of a landmark it is for many other countries. 1965 is a time period where in the developed world, by which we mean especially Europe, North America, uh, the former British colonies in Australia and New Zealand, as well as by that time Japan, there is a height of prosperity and of growth of prosperity that has various names in various countries, the economic miracle in West Germany, the golden era in France, um, and the baby boom era, which is remembered both for the you know demographic success of Americans at that time, especially we should note of American Catholics in the 1950s. 
but also for the general prosperity and at least prior to the Kennedy assassination, remembered happiness and, and peace of that period. Now, there's a lot in that memory that is forgotten, but there's a lot that is truly remembered, a relative lack of strife. If you look at popular music from 1965, it still sounds and seems, and the bands still present themselves much like they did in the 1950s. People are still wearing suits in public uh, just to go out. So 1965 is a turning point for us in so many ways. After that time, America will change radically demographically. Our birth rate will never again or has never again been what it was before that time, with the baby boom generally being ended at 1964. We will also change drastically as a country. Our cities will expand, especially in the South and the West, such that the population distribution will be really different than um, it is today. Florida will continue to expand enormously over the next several decades after 1965, becoming in time one of our absolutely biggest states from having been the 100 years before that, the smallest state in the Confederacy. In addition to that, our population will change greatly. We'll have many more languages spoken in America. In 1965, America has perhaps the lowest ebb of a foreign-born population inside our borders, legal or illegal, at any time, either before or since. We're also obviously before most of the social changes that are now remembered as characteristic of the baby boomers, although they were generally engineered and introduced by their parents or even grandparents, particularly by the generation that fought the Second World War. Not only the massive changes to immigration policy as of 1965, but also lots of other changes that now seem normal or accepted. In 1965, birth control was still illegal in the state of Connecticut, for example. So lots of things that we now take for granted or seem obvious about our world are vastly different in 1965. And that is perhaps nowhere more poignantly or clearly expressed than in looking at religion in 1965. When Quigley closes his book, the dominant form of religion, at least in American public life, so far as people know, is still then what was called, without irony, mainline Protestantism. Churches that now are in absolutely terminal decline, you can find articles about when the last Episcopalian will be born or when finally the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America will have to fold up shop. In 1965, that all seemed impossible. Not that there weren't challenges or, or changes going on in American religion. After the Second World War, for example, one of the big changes was the rise in prominence, certainly in public life, of American Judaism such that when the sociologist Will Herberg wrote a book about American religion, he called it Protestant, Catholic, Jew. Jews had never been a particularly high percentage of the American population and wouldn't ever again be as high a percentage as they were in the mid-1960s, but they were successful enough in American life that they could be ranked alongside the two major forms, if you want to denominate it that way, of American Christianity. 
notice Eastern Orthodox is not in there, and nun, N-O-N-E, is not in there, and atheist is not in there, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, because in this extended form of the 1950s, most people still went to religious services on a regular basis. They took their religion religiously. And at that time, you had not only those remnants of the 1950s still persisting, but also a general sense of some kind of moral agreement about what it meant to be an American and, and what it meant to believe in God we trust was an uncontroversial slogan. And so many people united in feeling sadness at the death of President Kennedy that President Johnson would win re-election in 1964 overwhelmingly, even in places that had always otherwise and would otherwise ever after vote for Republicans in presidential elections. There was a sense of unity and of pride. The demand that Americans reach the moon by the end of the decade was still laid upon us, and we were still pursuing it fervently. We called it still, with a 50s-like optimism, the space age. And people in growing suburbs in Florida's space coast were there to pursue that very thing. It was, in so many ways, a different world. And for most of the listeners, it was a world in which we did not live. Some of us were very small at the time. Most of us probably were not alive and wouldn't be for a while. So what changes and, and why does the time matter so much? It's almost providential that Quigley's book ends where and when it does, able to look up, thinking things would always get better. That sense of progress of inevitable change in human affairs, for the better, we should specify, was the very thing driving the opening of the Second Vatican Council. That council concluded in 1965, but it was not the product only of that year. It had opened three days or three years earlier in 1962. And with that progress, that sense that things would get better, Pope John XXIII wanted to revise how the Roman Catholic Church related to the modern world. The change for Roman Catholics was a sea change in so many ways, even if nothing had ever changed about the liturgy. Because when we use the phrase Vatican II, most of us, Catholic, Protestant, Jew, otherwise, probably think about changes to the service that both Catholics and other Christians attend on Sunday, which has changed drastically since 1965. But the opening of the council is, is vastly different, its reasons being indeed a great deal broader than liturgical reform. And we want to focus on those things, first of all, and especially this week, so that we can understand what role those changes in the service that, that Catholics and other Christians are attending on Sundays why those changes matter so much, or how they matter, and, and what they reflect. Now, I want to make some defense of a focus on the Roman Catholic Church uh, for a variety of reasons, because the listeners will think, well, why is a Lutheran pastor talking about these things, or, or why not talk more about Lutherans? In fact, that's a, <laughs> that's a question that I have already received, even though these episodes have not yet come out. Because when we 
discuss the possibility, I said that, you know, we're going to talk about the Roman Catholic Church, and then maybe we'll talk about the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, why don't you talk about Lutherans or the things going on among Lutherans? So let me just explain that. I'm not talking about Lutherans for the same reasons that I'm not talking about Presbyterians, and it's not because nothing happened. It is almost entirely because when we talk about the concept of power, we are not necessarily talking about pure realities of the kingdom of God. Even in talking about the church, we're not talking about those realities that, in my understanding of history, are generally going to be hidden in both their power and ultimate significance until the day of judgment. When you're a Christian, you believe that many things are being reserved. In fact, perhaps the most important things about life are being reserved for the full light of their significance until the day of judgment. We see in a mirror dimly. And because of the dimness of our perception, both of our own lives, but also of the past and of past lives, I cannot say that the full significance in the day of judgment of what has occurred in outward church history or religious history or religious sociology or however you want to think about this, that the full significance of those things is known to me or known to you or or known to anyone. It is in fact entirely possible that the evangelization of Alaska by the Russian Orthodox or the travels of various Methodist circuit riders in frontier Kansas will in some way matter more to the number and nature of the souls that we find in heaven seated at the right hand of Christ invited as sheep, that that will somehow matter a great deal more than things that we currently think a great deal more important. That's entirely possible. Whenever you're dealing with history, especially history that is subject to Christ's judgment, which is in fact finally all of it, but very obviously the history of the church, reservation of significance. What does this mean? What's it all about? What's it all for? Always has to be there. If we speak with utter certainty about the full and final significance of something, then we are arrogating to ourselves an office that belongs solely to Christ. So we're not talking about things that are either natively interesting simply because they are about our denomination or confession, nor are we necessarily talking about things that are of any kind of eschatological significance, perhaps. We're talking about things where the history of Christ's church intersects with the history of power broadly in the modern world, as we've been doing the entire year. For that reason, the two Christian denominations that we'll discuss this week, next, and and perhaps into the week after that, we'll, we'll see how we go, are not only the largest in the United States of America, the Roman Catholic Church, which has been the largest Christian denomination since roughly the middle of the 19th century when Catholic immigration just outpaced any other single denomination, right? And what so what we mean by that is by single denomination. It's still probably the case that on a given Sunday there are more Protestants than Catholics in a church in the United States of America, but those Protestants are divided up sociologically or theologically or by various means, sometimes merely historically, into different denominations. So as far as single denominations recognized as you know corporate entities 
in the United States, Roman Catholic is, is the biggest. The second biggest is the Southern Baptist Convention, which at this point is, is Baptist and convenes, but is honestly not terribly Southern. And perhaps to the same degree, perhaps even more than the Roman Catholic Church has been changed, particularly by the social changes as well as the demographic changes, the immigration changes of the past 50 years. So those two denominations not only are enormous in their demographic weight on religion in the United States of America, they also are bellwethers of of the changes that Quigley narrates in their growth, in their birth, and then their growth, but also of changes that Quigley himself did not live to see and certainly did not live to write about. So we're picking them for their outsized significance relative to the history of power, particularly in America, but in the case of the Roman Catholic Church, especially the entire world. I think that's reason enough, but let me just give you a final reason, particularly about Catholicism. Catholicism is unlike really all other Christian denominations in not only its ambition to be international or global, but in its reality of being international and global. Therefore, events that happen to it have global significance. This is not really true for any other Christian confession. And I don't just mean denomination, I mean confession. Things that happen to the World Conference of Reformed Churches, or it might be the World Reformed Communion or something like that at this point. Things that happen to the Ecumenical Patriarchate in Istanbul. Things that happen to the Russian Orthodox Church. Things that happen to the Lutheran World Federation or the United Methodist Church. All of these bodies having their extensions and groupings, not only in their countries of origin, but worldwide, simply do not have the same purchase on world affairs that Roman Catholicism does. So let me give you a counterexample to prove this. There's a person we've mentioned on the podcast before named Alexander Schmemann, who was a Baltic German of Russian Orthodox confession, who, though he was born in the Baltic, his family left during the Russian Civil War. He grew up in France among the Russian emigre community there, taught very briefly in their theological seminary in Paris, St. Sergius, and then was among the founding generation of St. Vladimir's Seminary, which is at least currently still in suburban New York. He was very much involved with Voice of America in preaching in Russian in sermons that would be broadcast into the Soviet Union during the Cold War. So he's, he's a very Cold War figure in and of himself in many ways. And people have suggested in the past, and, and some still do, that he had deep intelligence connections, which is how he specifically, at a very young and unproven age, as a priest and a professor, was chosen to move from France out of relative obscurity in a country that was not firmly inside of NATO and brought to the United States, and then was very quickly given a very prominent voice in both his church, the Orthodox Church in America, and in the Russian emigre community more broadly. So there's a figure who perfectly encapsulates a lot of things going on in the mid-20th century. 
he and his church do not have the same significance and are not acquainted with the same breadth of human affairs and religious groupings that you will find concentrated in the city of Rome between the years 1962 and 1965. And that is simply because if you have access to the Roman Catholic Church, not only do you have access to its followers in varieties of ways, but you also have a concentration of access. So instead of having to go to Schmemann in New York and then try to talk somehow behind the Iron Curtain to the Patriarch of Moscow or trying to talk to the ethnically Greek man who lives in Istanbul in Turkey, who is the ecumenical patriarch at any given time, and then trying to talk to, to somebody who is Carpatho, Russian, and lives in an obscure coal mining town somewhere in Pennsylvania, you can just talk to all of these men concentrated in Rome. And that's always true for the Roman church in as far as it, it's that, that being its headquarters, but it's true more than that when the bishops are assembled, roughly 2,500 of them for the Second Vatican Council. So that concentration of power and concentration of access to power, concentration of influence, concentration of lots of other things that all kinds of human beings desire is available to anyone with access to the Roman Catholic Church. So a focus on it and noticing especially its changes is, I think, natural and and requires no further defense. What we want to provide now is a basic synopsis of what happens or what causes and and then what occurs during the Second Vatican Council so that we have a clear timeline for ourselves of what's going on and and who's there and and why they're there. As I noted before, the Second Vatican Council begins in 1962. It's convened by Pope John XXIII, who for several years before that had, along with his closest advisors, been preparing a variety of movements, he thought, of opening up the Roman Catholic Church to the modern world. And the opening up was necessary, especially because of how the Roman Catholic Church had received the changes in the modern world, particularly since the French Revolution. Remember that all popes for a very long time had been and, and, and were still then and, and would be throughout the entirety of the council, uh, natives of Italy or of what had become a unified Italy. And so events within the European continent are of particular significance at that, at that time. The Roman Catholic Church still retains a, a predominantly European influence, even in its College of Cardinals, the, the group of bishops particularly appointed to handle the election of a new pope. But in addition to that, the influence of Europe on its affairs is therefore natural. That European influence meant that the changes that had occurred in Europe that you can find narrated in Quigley in various places are going to press especially hard. So shifts from the predominance of monarchy to a predominance first of constitutional monarchy and then to some form of democratic government. A change from presumptive religion and religious confession a world organized around religious confession since the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, to a world in which religious profession is 
first optional, and then sometimes even in formerly utterly unified Catholic countries such as France, a world in which religious profession is actually disfavored and, and sometimes even outlawed. So it's not just that Jesuits get expelled from various places at various times. It's also that being Roman Catholic in an open way, where the church as a corporate body is suffers from various legal difficulties, penalties, and, and so on in formerly Catholic countries, officially Catholic countries. In addition to that, Roman Catholics had faced, perhaps for the first time since the 17th century, and certainly for in a concerted, official way, for the first time since the heights of the Reformation and Counter-Reformation, great difficulties in countries of mixed confession, especially Germany, where Catholics formed their own political party, the center party, partly out of fear that their right to govern themselves according to the dictates of their church, of their confession, would actually be preserved by the increasing dominance of a officially Protestant Prussian power. So all of those changes, in addition to the Catholic Church's growth in countries that were not either officially or unofficially Catholic, such as the United States of America, with a very large Protestant majority for the vast majority of its history, as well as at least an undercurrent of anti-Catholic sentiment and sometimes anti-Catholic political organization. All of that had caused the Roman Catholic Church to have to think very clearly about what its relationship was to all of these changes. And generally, its orientation officially, this is not to speak of this Catholic or that Catholic who thought otherwise, but officially, its orientation was generally negative toward the modern world. That's the reason that the Catholic Church was targeted, such as when we discussed the Spanish Civil War. Why were, why were priests sought out and killed? Why were, why were nuns? Uh, why did they have their honor taken from them and then they were killed into the bargain? Why did those things happen? Right? Why was the reaction, especially in countries that used to be uniformly Catholic, why was it to attack and to defile particularly the Roman Catholic Church? Why would that be? Like the persecution of Russian Orthodox during the Russian Revolution, it was not so much because of this or that particular doctrine of sanctification or Mariology, but because of what the Roman Catholic Church represented culturally. The Christian Church generally in any country, but particularly when, as in the case of the Roman Catholic Church, it articulates its political theology, occupies a position in people's lives and then generally in societies, even where it's not established in any kind of way, that revolutionaries envy and desire for themselves. A position of influence over people's consciences, of governance of their actions, a sense of what you should do and leave undone. All of those things for Christians or in a country that is predominantly or entirely or even officially Christian, all of those things are done by the church. The church is there to educate your children. The church is there to inform you how you should live and how you should die. The church is there to 
govern public sentiment about various things so that certain things under certain kinds of Christian influence become simply utterly unthinkable. And other things that were prior to Christianity, such as care for the sick and the poor, that had existed sporadically prior to Christianity, become institutionalized, often through the church's own initiative. All of those things exist in, for, and because of Christianity. Revolutionaries generally want to dethrone those things. And by revolutionaries, we mean particularly those who have an ideology opposed to or absent of the religion traditional to the West, which is Christianity. When they overturn or oppose Christianity, it is simply because they need to take the place of Christianity. And that exists very often in the secularization of education, which we experienced in the United States generally after the 1950s, when our public schools ceased to be functionally non-denominational Protestant schools and became indeed actually secular. But that secularization had occurred generally much earlier on the European continent, not uniformly by any means, simply had occurred. Analogs to that in the United States were very few and far between, limited mainly to things influenced by certain strains of New England transcendentalism, as well as some of the revolutionaries who had come to the United States from Germany in the 1840s. But very few people went to a kind of a school prior to the 1950s in the United States and in most parts of Europe that was utterly devoid of the Bible or prayers or, in some cases, religious services of very specific kinds, Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican, and, and so forth. So it's because the church is inconvenient that the church needs to, in the modern world, either oppose or concede. Since concession would involve a church's admission that it has no particular right to exist or no particular unique reason for existing, the Catholic Church simply did not do that. It, it generally did not concede. Its concessions, when and where they existed, were honestly largely in organizational forms that we now see popping up again, uh, particularly under Francis's papacy now, and we'll talk about that next week, but not really of a form that if you look at the entirety of Christian history is of particularly enormous significance. So the idea that, for instance, in the United States, laymen would have a greater role in the governance of local parishes would be controversial enough to spawn a new denomination in the United States called the Polish National Catholic Church that still exists and is a sort of uh, 19th century preserved in amber version of a certain kind of American Catholicism, but those organizational or structural concerns were not on the level of the changes that would be wrought, nothing like it that would be wrought by the Second Vatican Council. By and large, and certainly summarized, at least symbolically, by the First Vatican Council from 1870, and Vatican just meaning that the council, the meeting of bishops from all over the Roman Catholic Church worldwide, had occurred inside the Vatican in Rome. That's all that Vatican Council means. Councils will often have the, the, the meeting place somewhere in the name. The Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Council, the, the Second Nicene Council, and so forth. So in the First Vatican Council in 1870, 
Roman Catholics had affirmed very famously the infallibility of the Pope when he speaks from the chair of Peter ex cathedra, and also the Immaculate Conception of Mary, something that had been certainly debated widely within medieval Roman Catholicism. In addition to that, and before and after that council, which was suspended partly by a great deal of political fear, but especially after that, there's a variety of papal encyclicals, official writings from the chair of Peter, that speak very widely to the modern world, to the place of certain modern movements, such as the labor movement, but particularly against any notion of theological change necessary, and therefore also doctrinal and and practical change necessary for the Roman Catholic Church in the modern world. Rather, the papacy spoke fairly uniformly against the notion that change was necessary in the church. Instead, the modern world needed to repent of its godlessness. And this, this stance was not only a purely theological stance, where, you know, we're not going to give up on the virgin birth of Christ or something, such as you get particularly with the fundamentalist movement in uh, American and British Protestantism. It was also a stance against the modern world's ideals in many ways of progress, of human capacity to govern itself without divine direction, of many impulses that stand behind a great deal, both of the optimism of the 19th century, particularly in Europe and America, but also of its materialism, its obsession with stuff and things, with greater prosperity and longer lives and a lot of the rest of that. And the Roman Catholic Church's stance on this was sufficiently strong that many Protestants on the European continent particularly saw it as a political ally. Despite the vast differences in confession, you can find writings by people like Friedrich Stahl, a very, very conservative Lutheran in 19th century Germany, approving of the Roman Catholic Church's nature of being a bulwark against the insanity of the modern world, which had been particularly applied for European conservatives, displayed and then remembered in the murders and the bloodshed of the French Revolution. All of those things made the Roman Catholic Church kind of a plum target for change. And it is particularly after the First World War that changes that were here and there in various people's opinions begin to become, let's say, have some sort of motive power inside the Roman Catholic Church. By the beginning of the 1950s, you have, particularly within educational institutions, especially universities, but also within the Roman Curia, that is the clerical bureaucracy that runs the affairs of the Roman Catholic Church and and was at that time almost entirely clerical, meaning clergymen. It's now significantly a greater proportion of laity today. That's another change since 1965. But at that time, the changes were, uh, let's say, not publicly announced. So give you an example is that in 1943, you get an encyclical called Divino Aflante Spiritu 
about the doctrine of scripture and the fact that this was released in the middle of the Second World War is significant because it flies under the radar. Prior to that time, Catholics had, along with most conservative Protestants of any kind, affirmed the inerrancy of Holy Scripture, such that you can find kinds of theological thoughts, opinions, and theologians among Roman Catholics before that time that you still find among conservative Protestants. So young earth creationist Roman Catholics, they existed. Uh, Roman Catholics writing books about the inerrancy of the text of the Bible, they existed. Those things are so far gone, so long in the past, that they weren't even particularly addressed by the Second Vatican Council. So less than two decades later, you don't even really have to explain to the world why the theory of evolution or certain ideas about the age of the earth or the church's relationship to science or the nature of the doctrine of the Bible. You don't really have to explain that you have changed a great deal on that because within 18 years, teaching on those things has changed, official opinion has changed, unofficial sentiment has changed, all of that is different. So change can be wrought in the modern world, especially quickly, particularly where it has official approval. Since that official approval had already changed on the nature of God's revelation, by the time you get to the 1950s and into the very end of that decade in the beginning of the 60s, just before the opening of the Second Vatican Council in 62, you have a church that is beginning to change the way it operates. But first of all, the way that it thinks. That change will be observed in pretty much all the documents of the Second Vatican Council. And if you are a Christian and you don't have a copy of the documents of the Second Vatican Council, you can certainly get along and, and you can most definitely <laughs> go, go to heaven without knowledge of them. But, but knowing them is particularly helpful. It's helpful for understanding a lot about the modern world, but especially what happened at Vatican II. The council lasted three years, and it had a little bit of a break during the time after John XXIII's death, during the conclave, that, that is the assembly of the College of Cardinals, in order to elect a new pope. From among the bishops who were already there for the council, but who would be chosen, uh, Gabriel Montini, to become Paul VI. So it's under two different popes over three years, a little bit of change there. But over that time, what's happening is that there are official assemblies of the bishops, as well as committees and lots of other work going on, most of it in public taking place in Latin, because another thing that's different about the world before 1965 is that not only was Latin still the lingua franca of the Roman Catholic Church, but the Roman Catholic Church was still officially speaking it. A reminder here that when C.F.W. Walther met with the Bishop of St. Louis on something like a regular basis, Bishop Kenrick, they would converse, converse, have fun together in Latin. So they're talking in Latin, but around the edges of the council are not so much the bishops who have always been uh, perhaps largely administrative figures good pastors, 
good, maybe managers of time, money, and personnel, but perhaps not, perhaps not, especially profound thinkers. The profound thinkers and the really influential people at the Second Vatican Council are largely what are called the periti, which is a plural. The singular is peritus. And that's, that's sort of sort of literally uh, people around. <laughs> but what it means is that the periti were officially advisors. They were unofficially drafters of opinions, drafters of thoughts, drafters finally, authors of those documents that will ever after define the nature of Roman Catholicism. Among those, among those observers, as well as to some degree among the bishops, are all the popes from Paul VI down to Benedict XVI. Benedict then being a young, not even a cardinal, just a young Father Joseph Ratzinger, very bright, very young, and very excited about what the Second Vatican Council would bring to pass, but including John Paul I and John Paul II, and so on. So everyone who will matter for roughly the next 40 to 50 years is there, and the ones who are not there will have to define themselves in relationship to what occurs there. So what does happen besides talking and writing? What's happening are a variety of what, if you look into the history of any of the documents, resembles nothing more than a diplomatic negotiation. Something is proposed by someone who has some degree of favor and has generally worked on something more than someone else. So a man who's very interested in the relationship of Roman Catholics to what are going to be called in One of the official documents, separated brethren, separated brothers, that is generally understood to be Protestants because the Orthodox are sort of handled differently. Someone who's very interested in that, perhaps a German especially, will have written something. Sometimes the documents leading up to this were merely matters of academic debate. So what's really interesting with Vatican II is how much academics matter practically in what gets written and therefore what gets interpreted and implemented later on. But sometimes uh, those writings, there was nothing beforehand. So for example, you get on the nature of the liturgy, roughly 40 to 50 years of what's called capital L, capital M, the liturgical movement that we'll talk a little bit more about next week, running up to Vatican II. But None of that gets integrated in any kind of extremely significant way prior to Vatican II. And and afterward, it's going to take years and years for it to change what Sunday Mass looks like for people. So some of this you could have seen coming. A lot of it you couldn't. And the reason that you couldn't have seen it coming is because the nature of diplomatic negotiation involves not just ideas, but personalities and their capacities for influence. Some personalities are going to matter a lot, but someone with a more, let's say, shrinking or humble or quiet personality, such as Ratzinger, the future Benedict XVI, will not matter quite as much as someone who had at that time greater success, greater influence, 
such as a man most people don't know, John Courtney Murray, an American Jesuit, whose thoughts on religious liberty will become definitive for the Council and for Roman Catholicism. All of that is to say that when you're dealing with a church meeting this large, what you're really dealing with is something more like a G20 summit than you are with, let's open the Bible and figure out what's happening. It's sort of too late for that by the time you have a meeting this large or you're dealing with entities this large, and to some degree when you're dealing with personalities this large. It's almost impossible for actual debate to occur in these places and at these times. And in the case of a document we'll discuss next week, Nostra Etate, the debate had happened two decades earlier and was decided. And by the time of the council, what you're really looking for is how you're going to get what you want. What happens over the course of the three years is that the council will pass uh, period by period after some debate, but generally with so little by the time it reaches the floor of the assembly that the majorities look hilarious. I mean, they look like an election in Chicago. It's like 2,178 bishops to 22. So <laughs> practically speaking, the resistance to the conciliar documents is very small by the time it reaches the floor, something you would expect in, in documents that have been crafted very carefully and diplomatically to ensure a relatively smooth functioning of the church's political process. And they're going to cover really the whole range of Christian life. So a lot of the documents are of really no interest to anyone except historians of Roman Catholicism because they're about things like how the bishops are supposed to relate to the Pope or precisely what the priests are supposed to do and what they should de rededicate themselves to and all kinds of matters of internal organization and, and nearly purely internal interest. The significance is really going to come for most people, mostly, in a series of documents that are about the church and the church's mission. And that mission, especially in its relationship to non-Catholic Christians, a very large change is going to be made there, but an even bigger change in relationship to other world religions. So in the time that remains to us this week, what we want to do is just summarize those things and set them up for a, a detailed discussion of particularly Nostra Aetate, the relationship of Roman Catholicism to other world religions, particularly to Judaism and to the Jewish people, for next week in order to explain what it is that matters and, and when a church changes radically, how it changes radically, so that we don't just foreground the fact that people began doing some of the Mass in the vernacular. That's not nearly as important as the other things that occurred. And we'll explain the relationship of that change to these other changes then. What fundamentally occurs in the Second Vatican Council is that the Roman Catholic Church gets defined as the people of God. The Christian Church, in fact, is the people of God with the subsistence of Christ Church being in the Roman Catholic Church, but not, and the vocabulary is very clear here and kind of technical, but subsisting is not for them the same thing as is. And it's a little vague, but what they mean to say is that as opposed to really all the time before then, Roman Catholics would not define themselves as the only Christians. So, Perhaps if you're 
Methodist great-grandmother had become Roman Catholic, she had to be baptized again because she wasn't a Christian before she became a Roman Catholic, of course. But now after the Second Vatican Council, Roman Catholics are gathered around the Vicar of Christ, the Pope, and the Church of Christ subsists in the One Holy Roman and Apostolic Church, Catholic seemingly meaning the same thing, creedally to them, but they weren't it. They were the Orthodox, and there were also the separated brethren, not, not called, uh, with any kind of forthrightness, Protestant. And no particular distinction was recognized among the separated brethren, but they were separated, but they were definitely brethren. So the meaning of the ancient phrase, outside of the church there is no salvation, extra ecclesiam, nulla salus, the meaning of that had to change. So, the meaning of the church changes. If the church changes in its meaning, so does its mission to the world. And if you want to read one document, I would read Nostra Etate, which we'll talk about next week. But maybe you could also pick Gaudium et Space, Joy and Hope. Uh, all of these documents, like all Papal encyclicals are named after their first several Latin words. It's in that document that the Council Fathers, that's what they're usually called in their assembled decision-making, the Council Fathers hand down the, the thought that the Church needs to open up to the modern world to accept certain things that would be fleshed out also in other documents but are named in Gaudium and Space, such as the idea that religious liberty is essential to the human person, that the human beings have a certain particular dignity. A lot of thinking that not only in its meaning, but even just in its vocabulary, seems rather alien to Roman Catholicism before it. And those changes, significant as they are, mean at least this, that the Roman Catholic Church will not look at the world, particularly the modern world, with its instantiations of power and democracy and the idea that people need to make very basic decisions for themselves, the concept of religious liberty that was honestly alien to Roman Catholicism. All of those things go out the window, and a new attitude, I don't have a better word for it, a new attitude, and then eventually, and also fleshed out in the other documents, new doctrines about who human beings are and how they are to be respected and what the church's role is in the world. The idea that it's the proclamation of the truth of Christ is at the center of it is at least accompanied now, as it never had been before, by the idea that the, the church needed to make peace among peoples and had particular social functions that perhaps had not previously had. All of that has changed. All of that is new. And this is one thing about the Second Vatican Council with which our Roman Catholic listeners will be very familiar, especially from discussion of the liturgy and, and what the liturgy is and what the liturgy, liturgy should be, but should be recognizable to anybody. And that is that so much is said coming out of the Second Vatican Council. That book, if you pick it up, of its documents is is a doorstopper. I mean, you, you might as well read War and Peace while you're at it. All of that is said in order to change attitudes, 
change opinions, change thinking. But the meaning of these things, the practical effect of these things is extremely unclear. What's going to happen? What's going to come out of it? Nobody really knows. And this will be described later on by certain thinkers as the smoke of Satan entering the church. And that very poignant phrase is poignant precisely because if the smoke of Satan entered the church, it was the church itself that opened the doors to make that possible. It's not like it slipped in underneath a closed door while no one was watching. That was certainly the experience of someone who in 1965 was going to a mass that was in Latin just like it always had been and taking his kids to First Communion in Catholic school just like he had gone and taking them to confirmation and the bishop would show up and the bishop was authoritative and didn't call himself Father Bob. Nothing had changed. So I can understand, certainly from the average person's perspective, how it felt like the smoke had come in underneath doors. But something to notice about the Second Vatican Council, as well as other changes that listeners are familiar with from their own denominations that we'll also talk about with the Southern Baptist Convention, is that it is the church itself, and particularly the church's clergy, that open the doors so that the smoke can billow in. I mean, it's not wafting silently and lowly along the floor. It is billowing in the doors, and the clergy are holding the doors open. Because the best that you can charge the Council Fathers with is an enormous amount of naivete. John XXIII, particularly the Pope who opens the Council, could be charged with enormous naivete about the modern world, talking about it as if the reason to have a Council is because so much progress has been made in the world outside that the church might need to keep up with it or, or redefine how it thinks about it or accept it. Or, and what is the nature of that progress? When we mentioned earlier in the hour, long descent, what we meant perhaps more than anything <laughs> were the various forms of decline in daily life, in the family, in infanticide, in all manner of evil that has really swept over us in the time between when the council closes and today, and not only among Catholics or only in Catholic majority countries, but sort of everywhere throughout the developed world. The decline, especially of the Roman Catholic Church itself, has occurred since that time. So there is something sweet but foolish about the idea that we need to adjust to the modern world's progress. The modern world was, at that moment, not only beginning to, but was just about to descend into utter moral chaos. So, what? why did they do this? What could this have been for? There are two answers to that, and they'll set us up for next week. On the one hand, and... This is perhaps always the majority report, particularly because most human beings do not understand what they are doing most of the time, is that the majority probably thought that they were doing the right thing and trying not to change over much. That they were doing something that seemed, in a word that would take on enormous significance, vague, however it may be, they were trying to do something pastoral. They were trying to guide the flock and take account of the things that the flock was living and that the flock was facing 
and somehow handle all of that and, and keep the flock together. They were they were trying to do that. That is that is probably the majority report for anything that occurs in the Christian church. But the minority report in any grouping of human beings are people who may have a better grasp of what is actually occurring at the time. Not not a full grasp by any means. We're not claiming they understood the full eschatological significance of anything, nor that nor that we do, but that they had a full grasp of what was going on and, and what was happening. To leave us open for next week, let's give one example of that. The document Nostra Etate, which would handle the Roman Catholic Church's relationship to the Jews, particularly, but also to several other world religions, uh, most controversially, as we'll talk about Islam. Nostra Etate had a variety of people providing input on it generally from afar, uh, and especially from the United States of America, a place the United States had come to occupy after the Second World War that Carol Quigley did have time to communicate very well, how utterly important the United States had become to world affairs, more important than the Roman Catholic Church, certainly, by the time after the Second World War. From the United States come communications from a wide variety of people, and, and probably the bulk of the original text of Nostra Aetate rips off uh, a document authored by an Austrian emigre uh, Catholic priest, John Osterreicher, writing from Orange, New Jersey, at Seton Hall University's Institute for an adjective that didn't exist before the 50s, Judeo-Christian studies. But in addition to Father Osterreicher, there were two figures very important in the nature of the document's text as well as its significance. And those were, respectively, Abraham Joshua Heschel, a conservative Jewish rabbi. That's a denomination, not just an orientation. A conservative Jewish rabbi who, at the time, was a figure of leading significance in American Judaism, similar to Fulton Sheen for Roman Catholics at the time, or to uh, Billy Graham for Protestants. And Heschel's input is something that we'll go into more next week, perhaps most surprisingly, but maybe it's not surprising to our listeners anymore. The Frankfurt School that had originated in West Germany, or Western Germany, prior to the Second World War and had largely been translated to the United States by virtue of emigration during the beginning of the Third Reich by largely, largely Jewish professors. Max Horkheimer, uh, formerly of the Frankfurt School, was a, a big source of input on the Roman Catholic Church's relationship to Jews. Uh, not to Judaism, Horkheimer himself not being of any particular religious profession, but just to Jews and the Jewish people in, in, in a sense of their political significance. And Horkheimer went along with various organizations like the World Jewish Congress in uh, providing that input and providing that advice both to certain of the parity who were particularly interested in Judaism, but also to the Council Fathers more broadly. This is where you see the nexus of power, of academic influence, of currents of thought utterly alien prior to this time to Roman Catholicism and, and perhaps to Christianity generally, all converging. So at a time of particular vulnerability, 
the church was open almost to anything. Now, our Roman Catholic listeners may feel that this is a time now, much like that time, a time especially for their church of particular vulnerability, and because it is a Christian church in a way to all Christians, a time of particular vulnerability. I would say the difference is that whereas there were official decision-making processes not controlled, that perhaps by Horkheimer or anyone else at the time outside of the church, now, with no such official meeting exactly ongoing or decided by the church's bishops, these things are perhaps even more vulnerable than they used to be, subject as they are to media influence and Pope Francis's sense of what would sound good in the New York Times. So we're covering this time because of its particular significance, both for Roman Catholics, especially as we'll talk about with the liturgy and the changed relationship to the gospel next week, but really to all Christians. But also because it seems that in many ways our day rhymes with that day, feeling something like a precipice. But maybe if we go downhill from here, we're going to go down a little faster. We'll just have to see. This is A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us, or you wouldn't be here. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find... God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. 
Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the beautiful inland Northwest.